Well, good morning once again. In the event that you didn't hear Emma, we're going to find ourselves in Galatians 2, verses 15 to 21. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it or load it. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you or you don't own a Bible at all, we'd love to hook you up. That's our gift to you. They're in the Connect desk in the back. Additionally, if you uh, are new, we'd love to hang out with you, take you out to lunch, dinner, coffee, whatever it is that you want, we do. Uh, fill out a Connect card. Also, leave it in uh, the Connect desk, and one of us will get back with you to set something up. Uh, hope that y'all are doing well. I love preaching God's Word. Again, if you are new, we preach through books of the Bible here at Storehouse McAllen. That is our jam. We love Jesus, and we love God's Word. And so I'd love to begin our time by, by just walking you through a, a story uh, based on what happened last night. So several of us uh, went to uh, the pigskin competition, the marching competition. This is an annual high school marching competition in the event that you are unfamiliar with it. And uh, my son uh, attends Memorial High School here in McAllen, and uh, we got to see the entire set played out at Mackay Stadium. And uh, it was a great time. We were really loud, particularly as they uh, called out their ratings and their division. Uh, I think we scared some parents, and people looked at us awkwardly, but that's because they lost. Um, and so with all of that being said, I always, I really appreciate pig, uh, pigskin. I appreciate it because I, I love watching my son compete uh, because I know the amount of work that goes into uh, marching season. I know the kind of work that it takes. I know the effort and the commitment it takes to simply walk through the kind of schedule that these students have. They are up really early in the morning and they come home really late at night only to keep doing some homework and other responsibilities. Additionally, if you're unfamiliar with just the whole marching season, they begin practicing their set in mid-July. And they practice from mid-July all the way through October, leading up to this one competition called Pigskin. And over the course of several months, they put in hours and hours and hours and hours of work only to perform for about five minutes. It's quite a challenge. And at the end of the night, all of the drum majors come out. And if you don't know what a drum major is, these are uh, student leaders who come out and they are the ones who ultimately lead the band when it comes to the tempo. They lead the band in terms of the changes. And so at the end of the night, the drum majors all come out. And in this case, we're at Mackay Stadium. So all of the drum majors come out, they line up on the sidelines and they're all lined up by school. And it is at this point that they're gonna receive their rating or as I called it, judgment. This is where the announcer calls out the high school and leaves you in suspense for a little bit. I hate that. I hate that. And so the announcer will say something like this. McAllen Memorial High School. Leaves it in silence. Division. And then he gives you the rating. Now, when it comes to these ratings, a one is pretty much means superior. And if you get a one, depending on the year, uh, you get to advance to the next stage of competition. If you get a two, it's kind of like progress reports in elementary, right? Like an S or an E was excellent, an S was satisfactory. You're not excellent, but you're satisfactory. That's kind of what a two is at pigskin. When you receive a two, you're not superior, but hey, thanks for showing up. 
if you receive a three, it's more like, why did you show up? <laughs> and so all the drum majors are lined up. They go on to say, at first it was Hidalgo, then it was Mackay, and then Memorial comes out. And so they say, McCallum Memorial. Division, we're all like just anticipant of what's going on. And they say, Division One. And so we get up and we scream and everybody's going wild and all of the high schools are on the away side of the stadium. Uh, and so they're going wild, they're celebrating, they're screaming really loud and parents are getting annoyed because Alan and I are screaming at the top of our lungs. And, uh, and so we're just celebrating because this means they get to move on to the next stage of competition. And I remember that as the drum majors were coming out to the sidelines, I was texting Seth saying, okay, here we go, judgment, right? On the program, it kept saying rating announcement. I said, that was dumb, this is judgment. This is where you get to see if the work that you put in over the course of this semester was, was worth it. So they got a one. And it was awesome. But then I started thinking, what if they or another school had gotten a two? It would have felt as though all of the work that they have done over the course of the semester seemed like an utter loss. And I know loving parents would say something like, you did your best and it was still really good and you have a lot of room to grow. And that is true. I'm not knocking any of that. I want you to know, especially if you've ever gotten a two at anything, right? Like I want you to know, yes, you did a lot of work. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. That doesn't mean it doesn't feel like a loss. As much as I enjoy the marching season though, the truth is that, that many of us treat the Christian life like that. See, we drop a crazy amount of effort and work and zeal in hopes that on the last day, we can look to Jesus and hand him a resume as we await our rating that we do all of this work and then we stand on the sidelines and as he looks at us, we're just ready to hook him up with our work. And if that's not daunting enough, our life itself is a roller coaster of ups and downs with various trides and, uh, and trials and seasons. And when we walk through them, our hope at times can be in our work. That is our effort. That when the season is over, we hope that we are accepted by God because we prayed enough. That we are right before God because we didn't complain as much as we thought we would. Or that we belong to God now officially because we tried to be a good person. Much like those students, we have put in a great deal of effort and we stand on the sidelines awaiting our rating just to hear that we are accepted by God, hopefully gonna get that division one and not a division two on the last day. To be perfectly clear, how we live, that is the decisions that we make, our efforts, our work, our capabilities, I want you to know that they matter. I don't want you to sit there and feel as though the things that you do, the decisions that you make, the way in which you live doesn't matter. It does. However, let me be even more clear and tell you the good news of the Christian faith that it is not our works that make us righteous before God, but faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. That is what makes us righteous before God. And so if you're a Christian, I want you to know, I want you to be reminded that God is most pleased in you because of Jesus' work for you. I want you to sit in that just for a moment. God is most pleased with you 
because of Jesus' work for you. That is, Christian, you are accepted. You are loved. You are right before God. You belong to God because of Jesus' work for you. And so this morning, as we unpack verses 15 through 21 in chapter 2 of Galatians, we're going to look at this doctrine that is known as the doctrine of justification. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a moment. For now, let me pray, and then we'll dig into our time. God, the psalmist prays for your word to be sweeter than the taste of honey. That's our prayer this morning. Therefore, may we incline our hearts toward your word this morning. And may you fill us with more of Jesus through your spirit. And may you reveal Jesus to those who do not know him. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. As mentioned this morning, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of justification by faith. And we're going to break down this section of scripture into three areas. Okay? And in case you don't get them on your notes, you should see them on the screen. The first thing is we're going to look at the definition of justification. We're going to look at the objection to justification. And then finally, we're going to look at the fruit of justification. So before moving toward our text, let me provide you with three quick reasons as to why this doctrine is important. Oftentimes when we begin talking about doctrine, many people get a little nervous because that's, uh, that's, that's something heavy is about to ca- uh, come, come our way. In addition to that, some people check out. Let me beg you not to check out. So let me give you three quick reasons as to why this doctrine is vital. First, because it's in God's word. Specifically, it's in our text this morning. And this doctrine is what Paul will regularly unpack as we walk through the rest of this letter. So we need to spend a little bit of time unpacking it now so that as we begin chapter three and move all the way through chapter six, it makes more and more sense as we move. Secondly, this doctrine is incredibly significant to the Christian faith. You see, the fight for this doctrine goes all the way back in the pages of church history. We can, for a moment, go rewind the clocks and go back about 500 years to something that's known as the 16th century Protestant Reformation. Now, this isn't the only time that this doctrine was discussed, challenged, fought for, stood on. It's not the only time, but it's one of the most evident times in history. And in the 16th century, what was going on is that the Roman Catholic Church in essence, was preaching that in order to be justified, that is, in order for an individual to be declared right before God, meant that it required faith and works as a prerequisite to the individual. Within that, within the church, there were individuals who began to challenge this doctrine, not because they simply didn't like it, but because they believed it was not biblical. And as they searched the pages of scripture, they came back to push back on the church. 
that yes, they wanted reformation, but they did not want division. Nevertheless, you had individuals like Martin Luther and later on John Calvin and other individuals like John Knox later on. All of these individuals fought for, pushed the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And as we fast forward to our present day, many would argue, and I would agree, that this doctrine is so important that it is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. The German reformer Martin Luther said it this way, if the doctrine of justification is lost, the whole Christian doctrine is lost. Later, J.I. Packer would go on to say, the doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears a world on its shoulders, the entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace. That's how significant this doctrine is to the Christian faith. Thirdly, the reason this doctrine is important is because most Christians either don't know about it or don't care about the doctrine of justification. An individual was once asked, could you please define what ignorance is and what apathy is. And in frustration, he said, I don't know and I don't care. That's the problem with the church today. That ignorance and apathy seem to be the state of most churches right now. So let's begin looking at the doctrine of justification by looking at verses 15 to 17, okay? Now, let me give you a, a quick preface. We're not gonna talk about everything that needs to be discussed about the doctrine of justification. I'm gonna try to unpack it as much as I can and as clear as I can. However, as we move forward in our time in Galatians, we're gonna continue to visit this doctrine over and over again because this doctrine is central to the teaching of this letter and certainly the gospel. Nevertheless, let's begin in verse 15. Here's what Paul goes on to say. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Okay? The first thing we need to note about this kind of confusing verse, and uh, to a degree it even sounds like an insult to those who are Gentiles. In order to best understand why Paul opens up this way in verse 15, we need to go back to last week's setting. All right, this is where we looked at verses 11 to 14. And in uh, uh, a brief review, Last week, we looked at this confrontation between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. And in that confrontation, what ended up happening was that Peter goes to Antioch and he begins to have uh, share a meal with Gentile Christians, new believers in the faith. Peter in Acts 10 was the one who received revelation from Jesus to go and preach the gospel to Gentiles. So for him to share a meal with Gentiles was a really big deal. He was showing that there was nothing to divide us anymore and that he is preaching ultimately that because of Jesus, we can now come, uh, come and know God through faith in Christ. 
And so as Peter is having this meal and enjoying bacon for the first time, what ends up happening is that at some point, Jewish leaders from Jerusalem show up. And as they show up, Peter sees them, Peter gets uh, afraid and fears them, and what he ends up doing is he backs off of fellowship with the Gentile Christians. Paul recognizes that Peter backs off and confronts him and rebukes him publicly. Now, one of the things that I had mentioned last week was, one, Paul wasn't doing this just to assert his authority. Paul was calling Peter out publicly because what was at stake was the gospel. In Peter pulling away from the Gentile Christians, Peter began preaching a different gospel that he first preached to them. And so the gospel was at stake. And so that's why Paul rebukes him publicly. Now, let's fast forward to our time now. Paul opens up once more. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So here, he is still addressing Peter. So this statement isn't necessarily referring to him, or in fact, he is not saying that him and Peter are better than Gentiles. He's not saying that. In fact, there is no distinction among them as sinners, but that as, it, as Jewish individuals who grew up in Jewish tradition and customs, they, that is Paul and Peter, had intimate or at least a general understanding and knowledge of God's word. Whereas the Gentiles came from pagan backgrounds and customs. Therefore, there, that is Paul and Peter, their zeal and knowledge and works of God's law did nothing but expose the depravity of their hearts when contrasted to faith in Jesus. Let's look at verse 16 briefly, and I'll tie it in in a moment. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet... We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is telling Peter here, hey, even though you and I come from Jewish backgrounds, even though that you and I had the revelation of God through his word, through the Old Testament law, our works, what you and I should have learned is that our works did nothing but expose us. That the law was meant to reveal the true nature of our hearts, not how good we can keep it, not how awesome we were, but reveal the true nature of our hearts. And so as we work our way into verse 16 and 17, you'll notice that Paul uses this word justified. He uses it three times. And Paul hammers this because he's going on to say that no one is justified. That, that is, no one is declared righteous, no one is just, no one is acquitted by works of the law. That is referring to Old Testament law. That no one is justified by works of the law and that their works or the law do not save a person. They don't save. No matter how good you are at keeping this law, it is not going to be what saves you. That though there are individuals who keep the law better than others, it still will not save. James goes on to say that, man, if you keep the law but break one of them, you've broken all of them. And so that's Paul's argument towards Peter here. And this is where we come to our need to define justification. Well, 
Justification, as Paul mentions it over and over again, justification is a legal term, and it answers the question and issue on how one is accepted and declared right or declared in right standing before God. The doctrine of justification teaches two main things. One, when God declares a sinner to be justified by faith alone in Christ alone, or excuse me, that is the first one, God declares a sinner to be justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And number two, when God declares a sinner as justified, as not guilty, he does so immediately and permanently. So let me, let me give you those two reasons once more. The doctrine of justification teaches two things. God declares a sinner to be right before him by faith in Christ Jesus alone. And number two, when God declares a sinner as just, he does so immediately and permanently. We need to look a little bit further. Well, how is this happening? How, how is it that God declares a sinner righteous or just? We're going to get a little nerdy again, or a little more nerdy. Justification, the act of justification is by this fancy $5 word called imputation. Justification is by imputation. That is, the righteousness of Christ is counted or imputed to the sinner so that their standing before God is as if they possessed the kind of standing before the Father that would allow them to. The righteousness of Christ is given, counted, put on, dressed, clothed, transferred, whatever you want to use, it is imputed onto the sinner so that when the sinner stands before God the Father, God the Father sees them as righteous, not because of their own doing, but because of the righteousness of Christ that they are clothed with. By nature and choice, we're not only sinners, but we are unrighteous. And that's what Paul is getting at. There is nothing that we can do to work our way in right standing before God. And this is where, this is where Jesus comes in. That when God grants a person the gift of faith and we place our trust in Jesus, we are immediately justified before God. That is, immediately, permanently, and everlastingly, our status is changed. Our status is changed. You see, when Paul begins to talk about the works of the law, we need to remember that the law did serve multiple purposes. It was indeed uh, meant to reveal how God's people were to honor him and worship him. But further, the law exposes our sin because we are incapable of keeping the law. Like, let that sit for a little bit. The law exposes the true nature of your heart because we are incapable 
of perfectly keeping the law. And as a result, because the law exposes our hearts, it also exposes our desperate need for a savior. When God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ and lived the life that you and I cannot live, he didn't come for the righteous, but the unrighteous. He didn't come for those who were found, but those who were lost. When it came to Jesus living the life that we cannot live, that means that Jesus fulfilled the law with perfect obedience. And on the cross where Jesus died in our place and for our sin, his righteousness, the life that he lived that you and I could not, his righteousness is now imputed onto the sinner. Oftentimes, we only think about the second half of Jesus on the cross, that Jesus died for our sins and that we are forgiven. Yes, but we must also remember his life, that he lived in perfect obedience, that he was the sinless Savior. And so on the cross, what he does, it's this, big, uh, this doctrine called the doctrine of double imputation. He takes our sin and credits us his righteousness. That's what's happening at the cross. And at the cross, he is able to do that because of the righteous life, the perfect life, the sinless life that he lived. And the matter of salvation works no matter how well motivated or how sincere could ever achieve righteous standing before God. It is only through faith in Jesus that can do that. That is why justification is so incredibly important to the Christian. And we're going to wrap this time up by tell, or I'll wrap this time up by telling you why that matters. Faith in Christ is not an achievement that earns salvation. Rather, it is a gift of God where a heart has been renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You did not earn it, but you do receive it as you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Justification is our legal standing before God on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. Justification is instantaneous. Justification is immediate and justification is permanent. Your status has been permanently changed. And as a result, don't confuse justification with forgiveness. Forgiveness is the fruit of being justified. When God declares you justified or righteous, it is a divine verdict where once at one point you stood condemned, but now your status before God by faith in Christ is absolutely and permanently changed. 
That's supposed to be on my notes. That's the transition statement that leads into the next section. I want to say that again. I want you to really think about that. As best as you can, when God declared you Christian, when God declared you as righteous, it was a divine verdict. At one point, you stood condemned. But now, your status before God by faith in Jesus Christ is absolutely and permanently changed. That is what Paul is getting at in verses 15 to 17. Our status has been changed by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So let's look at verses 17 to 19. Verses 17 and 19, Paul anticipates an objection, either from the churches in Galatia or the false teachers that were uh, trying to persuade the Galatian Christians. He anticipates an objection toward justification. Here's what he says, verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Here's ultimately what Paul is asking. Like he's, he's asking a question that he himself is going to answer, right? He's, he's anticipating the kind of objection that the Judaizers may have toward justification by faith alone. See, the whole thing about this, why he's unpacking this, why he's hammering this is because Judaizers, individuals within the Galatian churches were preaching that Paul was only giving a half gospel. Yes, you are saved by faith Uh, you are saved by faith in Jesus and works. We can't forget that, right? That's what they were trying to persuade the Galatian Christians to believe. And so Paul, over the uh, the course of chapter one and two, has been unpacking this argument that is ultimately leading to justification by faith alone. So here's essentially what Paul, the kind of question Paul is raising in this section. He's saying that if we are justified by faith alone, does that mean that we as Christians now have a license to sin? And if we have a license to sin, does that mean that Jesus is in the business of sin? That's the question Paul raises or the objection that he is anticipating. Let me say that again, okay? The the, the objection that he is anticipating is, okay, so I've just told you about justification by faith in Jesus alone, right? Okay, so then as a result, if we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, does that now mean that the Christian has a license to sin? And if so, question number two, if so, is Jesus in the business of sin? Well, let's go to the first one, all right? So does that mean that because we are justified in Christ, does that mean that we have a license to sin? What do you guys think? 
Yeah, nice, right? He even answers it. He says, certainly not. He says it this way in Romans 6.1. Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? And it's the famous phrase, by no means. And so what Paul is getting at is when a sinner is declared just or righteous, not only are they in right standing before God, but their nature has been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. They have a new heart now. And because they have a new heart, because the sinner, because you have a new heart, you now have new desires. Your mind has been renewed. That doesn't mean that we as Christians are exempt from accountability, but it does mean that because our desires are new, we hate our sin. Like the goal is to put our sin to death. And when we sin, we have been given the grace of God to repent of our sin, turn to Jesus, and kill that sin so that we don't keep doing it. We have been given new desires and a new heart because the Spirit of God resides in us. So it's not a license to sin. In fact, it would be very James Bond. It's a license to kill. Now that I think of it. In other words, because the Holy Spirit resides in you, you, Christian, listen on this, you have the power to kill sin. You have the power to kill sin. So it isn't a, it isn't a license to sin, it's a license to kill, to kill sin. Verse 18, Paul says, he's, this is where he begins to answer the question. <clears throat> For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. That little phrase when he's talking about rebuilding what I tore down, he's referring to the Old Testament law. He's referring to the Old Testament law that has been torn down by the preaching of the gospel. And so as a result... What happens when someone like Peter tries to rebuild the law after knowing Christ? What happened last week? Hypocrisy. On one hand, Peter was preaching to the Gentiles, hey, if you want to know God, it comes through faith in Jesus alone. Then he gets afraid of a couple of Jewish leaders, and he backs off and he preaches another gospel, saying, yes, faith, and you also have to uphold to these Old Testament restrictions, these Old Testament laws. In that moment, Peter was trying to rebuild what Christ had already fulfilled. And in that moment, Peter preached hypocrisy. It's what Peter did. It's what the Galatians are being tempted to do. And it's what us, it's what we do often. Here's the irony of rebuilding the law after knowing that Christ has fulfilled it and knowing that we can't fulfill it ourselves. Here's the irony that as we rebuild the law or if we rebuild the law, we become more sinful because we cannot keep the law in its perfection. That's the irony of it. And it's how many of you live. 
that you would agree that yes, faith in Jesus, we are justified through faith in Jesus, and I gotta do all of these other things in order to be accepted by God. I gotta do all these other things in order to be in his good graces. I need to do all of these things, be all of these things, do all of these things, say all of these things in order to be loved and or accepted by God, and in so doing, Personally and privately, we are essentially saying that Christ died for nothing. We need to rebuild the law. We are spiritually exhausted, spiritually depleted, spiritually depressed because we cannot uphold the law ourselves. And as we are doing that, as we are trying to uphold the law, the more and more sinful we become. That's the irony. Publicly, what does that do? It does what happened to Peter. We preach hypocrisy. And what happened when Peter preached hypocrisy? It was contagious, and he led others astray with him. Paul says that I've died to the law. Why? Because Jesus is the one who fulfilled it. Jesus is the one who fulfilled it. God is not in the business of sin but saving sinners, transforming their hearts so that they would be conformed into the image of Jesus and less of their former selves. If you know Jesus, you have a new heart. If you know Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you can put your sin to death. Verse 21, or excuse me, verse 20. This is where we finally come to verse 20. It's one of my favorite verses because it's, it's an identity verse. And identity is the fruit of justification. So in verses 20 and 21, I want to look at four truths that Paul provides us with. The first, he opens verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm going to go slow on this. I recognize my time, which is great because I really want to just go slow on this, all right? So if you're looking it up on the screen or you get your Bible open, I'm going to read it again. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. That little statement touches on, we've talked, a lot about, we've talked about a lot of different doctrines today. I'm going to give you another one in case you're not already confused. This is called the doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ. What Paul is saying here is that we are united to Christ in his crucifixion. And as far as God is concerned, we really and truly were nailed to the cross with Jesus. Because we cannot keep the law, and because death abounds, on the cross, the law carried out its penalty against us. On the cross, the law carried out its penalty against us. And Jesus bore that on our behalf. 
Keep reading that little phrase. So as a result, as a result, Christian, there is nothing that the law can do to improve or change your standing before God because you are in Christ. Read it again. I have been crucified with Christ. You are united to Christ. So when you read scripture and you see that little phrase, in Christ, you are united to Christ. Second, our old self is now dead. Paul continues, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that is now in you is a life that God has put in you through Jesus. So as a result, the world doesn't revolve around you anymore. As a result, you are not captured by selfish desires anymore, that your thoughts don't have to be dominated by pleasure or your own selfish desires. Rather, you, keep reading it up on the screen, rather you have the power to put sin to death because the Holy Spirit resides in you. I have been crucified with Christ. There's union with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That the old self is now past. Behold, you are a new creation. Number three. In Christ, our true identity is revealed. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Remember, justification means that your status, your identity has been permanently, absolutely changed. Faith in Christ reveals your true identity. Number four, Christ died for sinners. Read that section one more time. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Check it. This is Paul teaching them how to preach to themselves and in effect teaching us. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That makes it personal. That means it has, it's a present reality with future implications. Christian, Jesus gave himself for you. Therefore, you are just. You have been declared righteous. You have been forgiven. So let me encourage you, church, please Stop saying things like you need to forgive yourself. You can't. Jesus has already forgiven you. 
What else is there to do? You might say, here would be the objection anticipated. The objection might be, but what about my guilt and what about my shame? All of your guilt and shame was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those. Here's that little phrase, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven. You tell who, like, who, who takes that and makes it awkward. They don't like hearing it. You need to hear it. You have been forgiven. Additionally, stop saying that you need to pay God back. You can't. There's nothing to pay back. He has declared you just. You are no longer condemned. You have been called forgiven. You have been called righteous. And you have been clothed, not with your righteousness, but with the righteousness of Christ. Verse 21, it's, it's as if Paul wraps it all up. I do not nullify the grace of God. I don't, I don't dismiss the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul is saying, if we were saved by our own righteousness or keeping the law, then why did Jesus have to come in the first place? If we are saved by, by our own righteous efforts, why did Jesus have to die? The fruit of justification is not only that we are a new people or a forgiven people, but that in Christ our true identity has been revealed. You are in Christ. Now the beauty of that is you can't do anything other than receive it. I was uh, uh, meeting with a member in our congregation earlier this week and we were talking about that. We were talking about just sitting and receiving the grace of God for you through what Jesus has done for them in this case. And they were very honest. I have a hard time sitting there. And I was like, there's nothing else for you to do. Like you have to sit and receive the grace of God for you. Otherwise, you're going to be tempted to preach a different gospel. Met with a couple of other individuals. And as we were talking, a lot of the time they kept saying, man, I just got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do this. Man, this is what's going to help me get closer to the Lord. And I had to lovingly tell them that they were incorrect, that in Christ, they know God. They belong to Jesus. So then the question was, well, then what do I do? You need to sit in the grace of God. So does that mean pray? Yes. And sit in the grace of God. And man, I've learned this week that that is super uncomfortable for many Christians. Yet that is the foundation of our faith. Is it uncomfortable for you to sit in the grace of God for you? Good. <laughs> That's really good. That's where I want us to be this morning. 
I want us to be there because here, as we wrap it up, it, it begs the question or it begs answering the question, why does this all matter? Why does the doctrine of justification matter? It matters because we still live in ways that suggest Christ's work on the cross is either incomplete or ineffective. Like, sit with that. Like, you know how you don't like to sit and receive? Well, I hope you're receiving, right? Like, the idea of why is doctor, the doctrine of justification by faith alone so important? It is important because you and I still live in ways that preach Jesus' work on the cross is either incomplete or ineffective. whether it's through working and grinding out your own desire to be accepted for God, when you do that, when you adopt that philosophy, that way of living, you say that Jesus' work is incomplete. And so therefore, you need to pick it up where he left it. Or if you have spiritual garbage that you need to work out and take out in order to please God, if that is the case, then you are saying his death was ineffective. And that you now need to be God. These messages that we preach, we take before others with our lives. Preaching a false gospel rather than preaching that Jesus is in the business of saving sinners. So let me ask you, do you live in a way that preaches or suggests that Christ's work on the cross is incomplete? Do you live in a way that preaches and suggests that Christ's work on the cross was ineffective? What must I do? Receive God's grace for you. Christian, I want you to rejoice. Rejoice in that Jesus has saved you, that Jesus has redeemed you, that Jesus' righteousness has clothed you, that you stand before the Father as righteous through faith in Jesus. You might add, that's so generous and so humbling. Yes, that is the point. That is the point. It's humbling and utterly satisfying because what we do, that is our works, are now a response to what Jesus has done for us. It's a response to our faith. We don't have to do anything, but we get to do everything. It is through faith in Jesus alone that we have been made truly free. So as we conclude, Christian, this is part where you just get to continue to listen. Do you relish and delight in the truth of God's grace for you? Sit there a little bit. I don't know. I got lunch plans in 20 minutes. No one cares. Do you relish and delight in the truth of God's grace for you. You have been justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Therefore, you belong to God.
So surrender yourself before God. What, what is there to prove? Think about that one. What is there to prove? Surrender yourself before God. And by his grace, you can confess your sin. Turn to the Lord Jesus. And what you do is a result of who you are. And if you don't know Jesus, I love that you're here. I tell you that regularly, because I do. I love that you're here. And I want you to know that you do not know God apart from faith in the Lord Jesus. Apart from Jesus, you stand condemned. Yet, Jesus' death on the cross is the way, the invitation in which you can turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus and stand not only righteous, but pardoned and redeemed. Church, standing before God as righteous is not uh, a means of our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ for us. Us being accepted before God is not because of our awesome works, but because of Jesus' work for you. Let's pray. God, in your presence, we confess our sinfulness. We confess our shortcomings and our offenses against you. God, in your presence, we, we cast our burdens that our bones have grown so weary of before. God, before you, we confess that we are spiritually depleted at times, that we are spiritually exhausted, even spiritually depressed. And often it is because we are trying to do things in and of our own strength. That we forget the beauty of your grace, that we easily wander from your ways, that we forget your grace, and in forgetting your grace, we forget Jesus. So Lord, my prayer this morning is that we would stand in grace, that we would simply receive your grace before you because of Jesus. God, that makes many of us uncomfortable Good, may we be humbled this morning as we sit and receive your grace that you are pouring out onto us right now as we speak. God, may the cry of our hearts be a matter of joy in your salvation. May we sit in God's grace this morning and may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to God this morning. Amen.